And the last time, the last time I spoke, I asked the question, should Christians fear God? And today I just want to continue to explore that question a little further as we reflect on the greatness of God. But first, let me just remind you of a quote that I shared last time from John Murray. And I think it just gives us a helpful summary of the first sermon in this series. He writes, the fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear which powerfully produces adoration and love. It's a fear which consists in awe, reverence, honour and worship and all of these things at the highest level of exercise. It is the reflex of our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. And in the last sermon we concluded that God is not safe. Therefore we should fear him, honour and worship him simply because he is God. But we must remember that the fear of God does not just mean that we are to be scared of him. Sinclair Ferguson makes a very helpful distinction between different types of fear. He writes about a, a servile fear and a filial fear. Now, let me explain those terms to you. They're probably ones that aren't overly familiar to most of us. Servile comes from the Latin word which means slave, whereas filial comes from the word which means son. A servile fear is the sort of slavish fear that you would maybe feel towards a harsh or an abusive boss or master. Jerry Bridges writes that believers can fall into a servile fear if they don't fully understand the grace of God and know that they are fully accepted through Jesus Christ. See, if you believe that you need to perform or that you're only accepted by God if you work hard, God will appear like someone who you can never please. So you will view him like a hard taskmaster or a divine ogre who will get angry with you at the very smallest provocation. And even though you, you would never express your feelings in such obvious ways, there are actually many Christians who live with this type of feeling buried within our hearts. And this type of fear, this slavish fear, is illustrated by the third servant in the parable that Jesus told about the servants who received talents in Matthew chapter 25. And the servant said to his master, I knew you were a hard man. Harvesting where you did not sow and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid the gold in the ground. However, this type of fear is not from God. It, it comes from a distorted view of God. It is actually demonic in origin. And the devil, the devil wants to use this slavish fear to disturb, to unsettle, to haunt you. So you need to resist the temptation to live under the control of this type of fear and instead remember that you are an heir of God in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean, however, that we are not to fear God. It's actually important that we do, but it, what it does mean, it, it means that we are to fear God in the right way, in the proper way. Instead of servile fear, you need to grow in a filial fear of God, which stands in sharp contrast to the slavish fear that, that, that we actually we must resist. Filial fear is the loving fear of a child towards his father. 
It's what I actually attempted to illustrate in the story that I told about my dad freeing me from those fertiliser bags in the previous sermon. Sinclair Ferguson describes it as, as that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy and awe which fills our hearts when we realise who God is and actually what he's done for us. And when you focus on the greatness and the holiness of God, it will, it will lead you to a, to a place of fear and reverence for God as your heavenly father. It's said that there are over 150 references to the fear of God in the Bible. Now I haven't counted them for myself. Most of them occur in the Old Testament, but there are also many in the New Testament as well. And I want to just read a few of them to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, we are given a very clear instruction to fear God. We read, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we read how the church was being built up and walking in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But the best example is, of course, Jesus himself. The perfect, the perfect son of God who feared God, his father. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 to 3, we read this messianic prophecy that was fulfilled by Jesus. And the spirit of God shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And it's very clear in the Gospels that, that Jesus, Jesus lived his life filled with reverence, awe, honour, adoration and obedience. But not only did Jesus fear God with all of his heart, we're told he delighted in the fear of the Lord. I wonder would that describe you, would, would, that, would that describe me? To be like Jesus means you must delight in the fear of the Lord. And as you think about it, see, if we are to properly fear God, it's going to affect every part of our life. It will, it will touch your emotions, it's going to touch your feelings, your, your attitude, but it, it's much more than that. It is a perspective that's going to change your life, it's going to affect your behaviour. Without a proper reverential, awe-filled, adoring and obedient fear of God as Father, we, we tend to drift one of two ways. Either, either we drift towards this slavish view of God. And as a result, our obedience becomes reluctant because it's motivated by a fear of the consequences of disappointing God. Or we drift the other way. And when we don't have this right, all this reverence of his majesty, splendour, his power, his, his greatness, we gravitate towards an attitude of over-familiarity with God that, that doesn't give him the honour that he deserves. And it produces an attitude that does not fear the discipline of God. It is said that twins 
are described or sometimes described as double trouble and that was probably true of me and my brother Colin. My mum tells many stories of how as toddlers that we would get into all sorts of trouble. There was a day that she found us systematically just tearing out the fine pages from her best Bible. We were just removing them one after the other and then just throwing them around the floor. But that was mild in comparison to the morning that she found us walking around the kitchen floor in our welly boots. We were crunching shards of glass and spices. It didn't take her too long to work out what probably happened. We'd taken the liberty to climb up onto the work surface of the kitchen and when we got up there we discovered the spice rack filled with tiny little glasses, little glass jars of spice. And in our wisdom we proceeded to smash these spice jars onto the tile floor and once we'd finished throwing them down onto the floor, well, we wanted to make sure that the task was complete by crushing them under our feet. At the same time, we were testing out our brand new wellies. Now the obvious question is why? Why oh why? The most likely answer is that we saw nothing wrong with our actions. It it wasn't as if we were being disobedient. After all, we hadn't been told not to do it. But maybe significantly, at three years old, we probably hadn't developed the proper fear of our parents. I can assure you we were disciplined for our actions, although I don't really have any recollection of actually what did happen. But what I do know is this, that we never did it again, because with loving discipline and correction, we soon developed a respect, a filial fear of our parents. See, if we'd continue to smash those little spice jars onto the kitchen floor as older children or as teenagers, it would have been a very different, it would have shown a very different attitude towards our parents. There is a healthy fear of a loving parent that produces in a child a respectful level of obedience. And in turn, it honours the parent and actually blesses the child. So it is with the son and the daughter of the living God, but in a much, much greater level. See, to develop this filial fear of our Heavenly Father, you need to understand his greatness to understand what it is to be in the presence of God. John Calvin writes about dread and the wonder with which scripture commonly represents the saints as stricken and overcome whenever they felt the presence of God. He goes on to say, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. And over and over again in scripture we see people awestruck when they come, when they encounter the presence of God. One example of this is found in Mark chapter 4 verses 35. And this, this story begins with Jesus speaking to his disciples. He just gives them a very simple instruction. Let's go over to the other side of the lake. And Jesus had been teaching the crowd who had gathered on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This lake was 
an expanse of fresh water surrounded by mountains on all sides. And as the story unfolds, it's well worth us remembering that these disciples are actually professional fishermen and this was their regular fishing ground. They knew this lake well, they, they knew its currents, they knew its beauty, they knew its storms. But it was because of the unusual location enclosed by mountains and, and situated between the Mediterranean Sea on one side and the desert on the other that this lake was so susceptible to unusual quirks of nature. It often acted like a, a wind tunnel where, where wind where strong winds would just suddenly appear as if from nowhere and they would, without warning, turn a tranquil lake into a tumultuous uproar. Even today, with all the modern equipment that is available, there are still many people who will refuse to sail on the Sea of Galilee because they are afraid of the violent storms. But as the disciples set out to cross the lake that evening, they're not worried because they understand boats. They know this lake. And what's more, Jesus is with them. However, in Mark chapter 4, verse 37, we read, A furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat and it was nearly swamped. And these experienced fishermen were now in serious trouble. They, they know that, that even the strongest of swimmers, swimmers cannot survive such furious water. So they fought the sea with their combined experience. They knew that they should try to keep the bow of their boat pointing into the wave. And, and all of this time, as they struggled to stay afloat, Jesus is fast asleep in the back of the boat. Now I've never experienced that sort of level of fear, but I have come, well, sort of close. Once on a ferry crossing over the Irish Sea, the other time on an airplane coming back home from holidays. And in both cases, the boat and the plane seem, seem to be at the very mercy of the wind. And at that moment, most of the people are actually just they're gripping their seats. You can see the whiteness in their knuckles. They are in absolute terror. That's me. And then there are other people who are just filling sick bags. That's Rosanna. And a few of them are screaming. And then there's, there's that one person who somehow managed to, to be fast asleep and is gently snoring. That's Rachel, actually. It wasn't Rachel. And you have to wonder, how can anyone sleep in such chaos? It's, it's, of course, it's, it's hard to know. And, and all the time, all you want, really want to do is to wake them up and just ask them, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And what's the matter with you? And that's exactly what the disciples did. They wake up Jesus and, and I guess... As they do that, they, they, they feel this mixture of anger and fear. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what they expect Jesus to do in that situation. After all, the circumstances are pretty hopeless. And they're not expecting Jesus to stop the wind or calm the storm. That's impossible, isn't it? But they need to do something. And they do what any normal person would do. Under the circumstances, they turn to their leader for answers, even though they know that there are no answers. In fact, the question that they ask Jesus is more of an accusation. Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? The Bible doesn't tell us actually if Jesus replies to them or not, but what it does tell us is what he did. 
the very thing the disciples would never expect. Let me read to you how Mark records it. Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And Jesus stops this fierce wind and this terrifying storm with three words. He doesn't say a prayer, nor does he ask his father for help. He deals with the situation directly. He orders a divine command to nature, telling it to obey the voice of its creator. And instantly the sea recognises the command of the Lord. The wind stops, the mighty waves flatten to become a sea of glass. But here's the interesting part. However dramatic that moment was, and listen, it was dramatic, it was not the most surprising event of that day. See, what really should make us sit up and take notice was the reaction of the disciples. In verse 41, they were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked. Even the wind and the waves obey him. It was no surprise that the raging storm had frightened the disciples, but as soon as, soon as the storm was gone, you'd expect the disciples to relax, to say, whew, it's all over, thank goodness. No. What actually happens was that the disciples were even more afraid. R.C. Sproul explains it like this. He writes, It was the father of modern psychiatry, Sigmund Freud, who once espoused the theory that people invent religion out of a fear of nature. Freud argues that, that we actually feel helpless before earthquakes or floods or ravaging diseases, and we invent a God who has power over the earthquake, flood and disease. And because God is personal, we can talk to him, we can try and bargain with him, we can plead with him to save us from the destructive forces of nature in a way that we cannot plead with earthquakes, negotiate with floods or bargain with cancer. So the theory goes something like this, we invent God to help us deal with those scary things. Sproul comments, what is significant about the story where Jesus calms the storm is that the disciples' fear increases after the threat of this storm has been removed. The, the storm has made them afraid, but Jesus' action in stopping the storm makes them even more afraid. So what we see is this. We see that an encounter with Jesus Christ causes a greater fear than anything that they had encountered in nature. Why? Because in that moment they realised that they were in the presence of the Holy One. And it, it sort of blows Freud's theory out of the water, pun intended by the way. You see, no one, no one would invent a God whose holiness and greatness is more terrifying than the forces of nature that provoked them to invent a God in the first place. And we must conclude that Jesus was different. He made people uncomfortable. He was, as R.C. Sproul describes, the, 
the supreme, mysterious stranger. And it means that those who knew him well often wanted to keep their distance from him. It explains why there, why there were so many times when the disciples and others backed away from Jesus. And the reason's obvious. Because while they were in the presence of Jesus, they realised that they were in the presence of greatness, of holiness. And they became very aware of their own sinfulness. And this highlights a principle that we see throughout scripture. Sinful people are not comfortable in the presence of a holy God. It's the reason why Isaiah, when confronted with the holiness of God, cries out, Woe is me, I am unclean. From a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And even today there are many people who are comfortable viewing Jesus from a distance but they don't want to get too close. And down through history there have been many non-Christians who have respected Jesus and his teaching. Even Frederick Nietzsche who announced that God is dead talked about Jesus as a model of the heroic. George Bernard Shaw, who was very quick to criticise Jesus in many ways, acknowledged that there was no higher standard than Jesus Christ. So there's no question over the morality of Jesus. Jesus is like the guy in maths class who always gets 100% while everybody else in the class is sitting on about 30. It explains why the religious people could not tolerate him. The very presence of Jesus was enough for them to want him dead because deep down they realized that Jesus' righteousness, his holiness, his greatness is the real thing. Even Pilate who eventually had Jesus crucified had to acknowledge that he could find no fault in this man. So why was such a good upright moral man condemned to death? The answer it's summed up by R.C. Sproul the world wants to honour Christ from a distance. Because up close, Jesus challenges a sinful world. And unrepentant sinners cannot tolerate him. He is truly great. He is God. He is the creator of everything. And there is no one, no one who compares to him. The Bible, the Bible often uses the word great or greatness to describe the awesomeness that God displays. After crossing the Red Sea, Moses sings a song to give glory to God. In it he says, In the greatness of your majesty you threw down those who opposed you. Exodus chapter 15. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy he refers to God as a great and an awesome God as well. As the great God, mighty and awesome we see a similar idea expressed in the Psalms, in Psalm 96. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. In Psalm 104, O Lord, my God, you are very great. In Psalm 150, praise him for his act of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. And, and we should also appreciate that his greatness is infinite, it's beyond our understanding. Psalm 145 writes, Great is the Lord and most worthy of 
praise, his greatness, no one can fathom. But there's perhaps one of the one Old Testament passages that highlights the greatness of God, maybe more than any other, and that is Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and the hills on scales? Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instructions about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right and show him the path of righteousness? No. For all the nations of this world are like a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it was a grain of sand. All of the wood in Lebanon's forests and all of Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of this world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes they count as less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? I wonder if you ever tried to carry water in the palm of your hand. I wonder how much you think you can get in there. Maybe a tea tablespoonful, if maybe on a good day. But let's just explore what Isaiah is saying here for a moment. See, scientists have estimated that slightly more than two-thirds of the world's surface is covered with water. In some places, the ocean is up to six miles deep. Which makes it actually virtually impossible to actually calculate the exact amount of water in the seas. But even a best estimate of the number of litres of water in the ocean would be beyond our comprehension. Yet we are told that God holds all of this water in the hollow in his hand. It's a picture that should help us to understand just the vast immeasurable difference between God and man. It is the huge difference between a tablespoon of water compared to the entire volume of water in the oceans. And it should, it should show us just how small you are and how great God is. But then Isaiah poses a follow-up question. Who can measure the heavens with the breadth of his hand? A handbreadth is the distance between the tip of your thumb to the tip of your little finger. It was common measurement that was used in Bible times as just a handy way for people to measure things. For starters, it was always there. The width of your handbreadth, well at least I've measured mine, mine's about 20 centimetres, give or take a little bit. By contrast, God is so great that he marks the heavens with the breadth of his hand. And once again, we have got another problem because just like measuring the volume of water in the sea, so measuring the distance across the universe is virtually impossible to calculate. But what we do know is that the nearest star, other than the sun, is thought to be about four and a half light years away. And since light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second, it means that the nearest star is over 26 trillion miles away. Now that's a lot of knots. 
Remember, that's just the nearest star. To measure the distance of the entire universe, however great that may be, is simply incomprehensible to us. We don't have enough knots. Yet we are told that God measures the universe with the breadth of his hand. Truly, our God is awesome. His greatness no one can fathom. And when we consider the greatest things in nature, the vast oceans, the expanse of the heavens, the, the majesty of the mountains, incredible as they are, they are as nothing in comparison to God. But as if, as, but as if to reinforce the message, Isaiah continues by talking about God's greatness in his superiority over the nations in verse 15. He says that, that God regards the nations like a speck of dust on a set of scales. I wonder when the last time you went to the shops to buy some fruit and vegetables. I mean, you, you, you can buy them not in bags, but you buy them individually by the pound. If you can think back to that moment, did you ask the checkout person to wipe the scales first before you made your purchase? Were you thinking to yourself or even saying to yourself, I'm not going to pay any extra for that dust? I'm not made of money. <laughs> of course you didn't. You didn't even think about any specks of dust because you know it actually would make no difference to the outcome of the weight of even the smallest of oranges. In the same way that a speck of dust is insignificant and irrelevant to you, the nations of this world are just as insignificant to God. Now it's not that they are unimportant on a human level. God is simply so much greater. And the purpose of this is not to run down the nations of this world, but to communicate and to paint a picture of how great God is. God is without limit. He is infinitely greater than anything we could ever possibly comprehend. So we must bow in awe and adoration of him. But Isaiah is not finished. You see, not only is God superior over the nations, he is sovereign over the rulers of this world. Every king, emperor, prime minister, president are as nothing before God because they are in complete subjection to his sovereign power. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. And God's authority is unconditional and unrestrained. And the greatest rulers of this world are under God's sovereign control. And that includes every event that has ever taken place, every decision that has ever been made and ever will be made, whether it be to do with Brexit or to do with COVID or anything else. Nothing happens in this world that does not come under his sovereign rule. He is infinite, eternal and unchangeable. He is totally without limits. His power, his sovereignty and immense greatness we cannot begin to understand. And all of these illustrations of the greatness of God force us to ask one question in verse 18. To whom can you compare God? And we must conclude along with Isaiah that God is far, far greater than anything that we could ever imagine. 
you certainly cannot compare God to man. He is infinite, we are finite. He is eternal, we are mortal. He is self-sufficient, we are dependent on him. So, we should fear the Lord and we should put our trust in him. We should stand in absolute awe and amazement at his great power and his sovereignty over all of his creation. Jerry Bridges writes, everything about God is fitted to fill our minds with awe and supreme veneration. He is the inexhaustible fountain of all being, all life, all intelligence, all wisdom, all power, all good and all true happiness in this universe. He gives all men life and breath and breath and everything else. To fear God is to understand the awesome sense of his greatness, excellence and grandeur. And he is displayed all of this for us to see in his word and through his creation. And we in turn, we need to both fully appreciate his greatness but also grow in a proper fear of him. I want to encourage you this week. I want just to spend some time meditating on the greatness of God. Why not just go for a walk? Why not make sure you're looking around you? Make sure you're appreciating all that he has created. Read some stories, some Old Testament stories that just demonstrate his power. Remind yourself of how great he is. Remind yourself that he is more infinitely awesome than anything that you can ever begin to imagine. He has no equal. He is the one who should be feared. Well, let me finish with the words from the end of Isaiah chapter 40. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depth of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Father in heaven, we come to you and we say, Lord, we adore you. We're just blown away by your greatness, by your splendour, by your awesome power. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us at greater levels. As we look around at your beauty of your creation, we think how much greater is our God? How much more magnificent is he? As we read your word, by your Holy Spirit, just bring it to life. May it excite us, but also may it give us a desire to know you more in these days. We ask all of this in your precious name of Jesus. Amen.